Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling, your host. One of the most striking global shifts that are happening right now is Sub-Saharan Africa's takeoff. A lot of ex exciting changes are going on from Senegal to Ethiopia, from Sudan to South Africa. Health is improving and the young are more educated and more informed. Now, some pessimists say that the challenges are too huge to be met, but no one can ignore the fact that Africa's population is basically the only region of population that would continue to grow. And by the end of this century, four out of every 10 human beings will be Africans. My guest today is Bernadette Sebaduka. She's a doctor working as the local head of the UN Population Fund's office in a small town in West Nile province in Northern Uganda, one of the poorest regions of that country. Her work entails improving reproductive health and combating harmful cultural practices. Bernie was born and raised uh, in the Ugandan capital, Kampala, 44 years ago. Welcome to the podcast, Bernadette. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anders. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. I'm so privileged and uh, grateful to be here. Uh, you and I have met before in person, not like this in COVID-19 times where you <laughs> use modern <laughs> technology. Uh, and when I met you some two and a half years ago, uh, we had a conversation in a restaurant in, uh, I think it was in Mbale in Eastern Uganda. That's uh, correct. As far as I recall, it was a, a kind of a modern restaurant with some kind of hip culinary concept like Mexican or Asian or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't really remember, but let's say- You have say, a good memory, that, that's no, exactly. That's, <laughs> okay, so <laughs> yeah. now let's say that you invited me to some restaurant in your neck of the woods, like say next week, what is on the menu? Um, wow, so um, what I would have on the menu would be a bit of what we call matoke, this is a plantain that we serve um, as a staple here in Uganda. Uh, it's normally yellow mashed sort of food. And then with that, I would serve you chicken and peanut paste. Um, this is something that I love cooking. And as my guest, I'll make sure that I really uh, prepare it very well for you. And then we can take that with a bit of um, juice, uh, sugarcane juice, or something that I would think you haven't taken, uh, much as I know that you travel a lot. Uh, sugarcane juice, no, I don't think I've had that actually. So that sounds really nice, interesting. And this is yes. what you would cook yourself? Would it be the same if you took me to some kind of restaurant? Um, if I cooked it myself, I, I would cook that. But if I took you to a restaurant, then would have a range of things um, depending on what uh, what you as my guest also want. Uh, it could range from Mexican, Indian, Chinese. And that's really, you know, how developed uh, we have come. So one wouldn't necessarily feel like so far away from home um, if we went out. Okay, so you have those kinds of restaurants in, in West Nile as well? 
in West Nile, yes, we have one called Cosmos. We, we still have a, a big international community that comes here for work and also for tourism. So there are some uh, business people that have tried to target that and they do prepare such, such meals. Um, and the okay. locals love them too. But you still love to eat a lot of, um, uh, or you mainly eat uh, traditional Ugandan food yourself, would you say? Or, or are you um, influenced by, by Western, uh, Western kind of meals? I have been influenced by uh, Western kind of meals. Um, and so the African ones I do when I am hosting people at my home are like many visitors and we want to have a variety. But given the nature of my work, I'm always on the road, um, moving from one rural place to another and you know moving to small towns so you find that uh, getting the local food that is fresh becomes a challenge and so um, i've taken on eating like fast food you eat a piece of chicken and some uh, french fries and you're good to go and that takes you for a whole day and uh, when i get back home uh, i i guess we have been influenced a bit like my children are watching cartoons and these are the sort of things that they are watching so the few days that they see me at home back from the field they want me to prepare them some of those I would say comfort foods and so um, we have a bit of you know a bit of both but mainly western mm. food mm. yeah uh, okay um now I well I remember that uh, along along the roads in Uganda on the countryside there were so many uh, people selling selling fast food different kinds of local fast food uh, grilled foods and uh, all kinds of really yummy stuff mm. uh, at no cost at all really so <laughs> that was something that you don't really see here in Europe uh, but you grew up in in Kampala or in the Kampala region is that correct that's correct. I grew up in a, a Kampala region, I would say. We have uh, a number of regions in Uganda, and the central region that has Kampala has one of the districts close to it where I grew up. Mm. Uh, but even within Kampala, for example, all the next district where I grew up called Masaka, you find that you have the urban center and also the rural setting. So mm. I grew up in a village. Um, so to say. Um, and that looking back was a bit of fun because you get to interact with nature, collect firewood, um, fetch water from the well, um, do some farming. And then eventually I got the opportunity to go to a school in the city which actually has made me different from my peers from the same village. But this is because my mother dreamt that she wished a higher education that for me than what she had got. But also now that growing up in the bit of rural setting has helped me that when I have to go back to places like Karamoja or West Nile, I easily relate with what is going on and uh, I'm able to see through the aspirations and how easily this could be lost if nobody um, really helps to catalyze the process for the young girls and boys in these uh, uh, hard to reach settings. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I didn't know exactly what the settings were when you grew up. I just know that you were from Kampala, but this is interesting to hear that it was actually a village that you grew up in. But anyway, mm -hmm. you, you, you had access to the big city. And uh, yes. Kampala is, as far as I understand, uh, a huge city and it's growing very fast. I think maybe by hundreds of people every day, I guess, people coming in that's, from the countryside. Now. So, I mean, it's, yes, it's, it's very, <laughs> it's a very, very big city. And, uh, and now you're in the countryside. But this is a question that might come across as a little bit uh, provocative, but it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very honestly, it's a very honest question. Do you, I mean, you're a highly educated person from let's say then more or less uh, urban area from more or less from a big, big city. Would you say yes. that you have perhaps more in common with highly educated people from big cities in other parts of the world, perhaps like myself, than let's say a small holder in the countryside in Uganda with no education? Do you understand my question? I understand your question. Um, I would say that uh, <clears throat> I am in between um, a highly educated person in a, um, in a big city, like for example, in Sweden. Um, I have had a chance to visit, for example, Austria and UK. And I find that uh, even people who are a bit younger than me or have not yet attained the education that I have, they have acquired a, a number of uh, skills. They are able to do so many things. Um, life skills in addition to the technical expertise and to also be uh, in pace with the, you know, with the rapidly changing technology, if I may say that, um, which is not exactly the, the case uh, for me. So I feel that some of the things are slower. I have to do a lot of learning on my own to pick up on some of the things that I could have missed out. And for, uh, for someone who remained in the village, then the story is a whole lot different. Um, what they're able to do now, for example, uh, for me, coming to the city has challenged me to, to dream bigger. So you find that even if our education system was training me mainly into medicine, the exposure helped me to look into community work, um, counseling, management, and other things. And yet, uh, someone who has remained mainly in a semi-rural setting could have remained on that one profession and done that and, you know, being a major in a few areas uh, because of the lack of that exposure. So I feel that I'm in between, but uh, like you said, if I'm compared uh, to Uganda in general, I would say that uh, I'm in a good position uh, in comparison to many other people in Uganda. Mm. Well, I've yeah. been thinking a lot about this myself because I mean, the differences between a big city here and, and, uh, and the countryside is perhaps uh, smaller than in Africa, or, or maybe it's not, I, I'm not sure, but uh, I've been, as you say, been traveling a lot and, and I kind of find that uh, I sometimes feel I have more in common with people from, you know, big cities like Berlin or Barcelona or whatever, Moscow perhaps, than, than people in small villages in my own country. And that has yeah. a lot to do with, you know, globalization and nationalism, all, all these issues that are on the table right now. Uh, so, um, it's interesting to see because 
there are so many prejudices in, in Europe about, about life mm. in Africa. And I, I think it's interesting to hear from a person in your position about these, these things. But I would also uh, like to, I'm curious to hear more about your, your own personal journey from that little village outside of Kampala to where you are now. I mean, through school, through your career. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit more about how it, how it came about? Um, thank you, Anders. So I'm born in a family of uh, over 12 children, about 14 children. Mm. Um, this is uh, mainly because of uh, religious uh, affiliation uh, that, um, you know, my parents felt there was some instruction uh, religious-wise that was telling them to not use uh, bath spacing. And so uh, we ended up being many. Uh, so I came out of that and uh, I used to, you know, observe uh, the people that are working in our community, the missionaries uh, teaching us how to pray and treating us in hospitals when we fell sick and also in school. And that really motivated me when I was growing up to feel that I want to do something in line with that because these are predominantly what we're seeing in um, our community. And so I developed an interest uh, in, you know, growing to help others, like would read stories about Mother Teresa. Um, and then I felt that maybe I could move towards a line like that. Uh, and I realized as I grow up that this is the, the calling of the journey that I have moved into. Um, working in communities, I started off as a counselor in a small slum in Kampala. And in this place we had like, this was a forgotten sort of place. It's called Kawempe Division. And in this place, we had so many, we still have slums, but there were many more that time. And the young people seemed to have been, you know, forgotten. You, you, people thought this is the place where you find thieves, or where you find school dropouts. This is the place that floods and things like that. And so I was working on a small project with women doctors uh, to health educate the youth and make sure that uh, they do not get unplanned pregnancies uh, or they are able to pursue their dreams uh, and attain them. And it was really uh, an interesting journey. Um, and I look back at it as a significant moment uh, because we were able to find people that had dropped out of school and walked with them through that whole uh, sort of dangerous community in quotes and motivated them to think about their future, to plan uh, th their goals. And we were able to health educate parents, to talk to children. And now we see that the people we worked with, the people I worked with, have been able to plan their families. They've been able to get into uh, positions of politics, they've been able to pursue further studies. Uh, and this is interesting for someone who, for example, grew up in a small house with a single parent and didn't have much to hope for, or was surrounded by people that were abusing drugs and all that. 
So that uh, is what has continued to motivate me to be able to create change. And I've done that even in Karamoja, where I've been working and I continue to do that, uh, picking on a group of uh, young people and mentoring them. Some of them, sometimes it's in relation to work. You find a university graduate uh, that is about to lose their dream because of sexual harassment and they don't know uh, how to deal with it uh, because it's not something that is easy to talk about and they can't report it to the human resource um, manager. I can listen to them without judging them and then guiding them how to navigate that. Then they're able to go on and really, you know, get that confidence and uh, attain their dreams. So that is uh, what I continue to do as I also do my professional work. Okay, so let's uh, um, switch over to, to talking a little bit about your, your actual work today, what you do yes. at, uh, at the office. And as um, I mentioned in the introduction here, you are trying to, you're working with improving uh, adolescent sexual and reproductive health and combating uh, harmful cultural practices like child marriage and female genital cutting. So, uh, how do you how do you do this? What what is a, what is an ordinary day like for you? Um, an ordinary day would begin with uh, starting in the office and uh, discussing with my team what we are going to do for that day. If it's a Monday, um, for example, would know what we want to do during the week and uh, then mapping out or agreeing on how we contact the stakeholders we work with because the, the work that I do involves working with various UN agencies, uh, working with cultural leaders, religious leaders, and also representatives of the community. So mapping that out and then going off uh, on the road and uh, meeting, for example, having a meeting with a district leader and having a conversation about <clears throat> the work that UNFPA supports and how that uh, is going on within their district where we need to improve uh, how we can involve their communities more and things like that. So I have that discussion and then I also go out into the field to see exactly what's on the ground. And sometimes you find that you you get into like a personal discussion with an individual that uh, has a specific, specific problem that is outside the group. Uh, for example, it's a girl that is being forced into child marriage or has run away from home uh, because they, they were being, they were going to be, you know, cut uh, female genital mutilation and things like that. So you find, I find these uh, individual needs, but also the group needs. And, and I handle it as it comes, but overall my work uh, focuses on coordinating the work that UNFPA does. And that is in a really big area, like for example, 30% of Uganda making sure that we are coordinated, we are working with stakeholders, uh, we are delivering value for money, and we are being accountable to our beneficiaries uh, in the things that we are doing, and also to our funding partners. So what does it entail on, on the ground, so to speak? What, uh, in what way can you see improvement? Can you see things happening? Can you see changes in people's, people's attitudes? 
Yes, uh, I, I see uh, changes in people's attitudes. This is a gradual process. I see changes, I see a lot of questions. Uh, for example, um, if I may relate it to child marriage. Uh, previously, we used to find that uh, parents were encouraging girls to get married early. Uh, for the fathers, it was mainly because they look at their 10-year-old and they know that if this girl is ex exchanged into marriage, the father is going to get 30 cattle right away, just like that. And so they had, and some of them still have that motivation. And for example, the mother would say she wants her child to get married because she fears to get ashamed in case her child gets pregnant before she's married. Mm. And so she would be like encouraging of the girl to get married and to say, you know, she herself had gotten married when she was a teenager. So she feels this is okay and she's encouraging that. But as we have continued to work with the communities, we find that this is shifting. Uh, we are having conversations of the implications of getting instant wealth. Like if you got cattle instantly today, what, uh, what is the cost of not waiting eight years to get a university graduate like Bernadette? Um, and so when we keep having these conversations with the mothers and them listening to others that have succeeded, you find that this is changing and this is what brings a smile to me and others that I work with. Mm. Uh, when you find mothers saying, whereas they went through that unknowingly or they didn't have where to run to, now they are willing to be parts of community groups that say no to that and they can provide social support for children, that, for young girls that need a place to run to. They can support that process of going to a local leader to report child marriage. Uh, and, you know, they, they can contest some of the things that happen. For example, uh, one of the commonest, one of the things that used to happen commonly was called a courtship rape. Uh, whereby um, if a boy wanted to marry a girl, he would wait for her as she goes to fetch water and they would gang up with a group of boys and, you know, uh, assault her. Um, and the girls who happened to be with that girl would then just run away for fear of the boys and they would say this is correct. But this is slowly changing. How, how, could, how could they, they say that that was that correct? Uh, it because the the culture felt that you you know a, a girl should not willingly just say yes to uh, a decision like marriage, uh, and so if she's able to fight off the men and they don't take her and they do not assault her, then uh, it shows that she's a strong woman who is you know able to become a mother much as it was really devastating to the children, but the culture had come to make them believe that uh, it was for their own good. So, but now this is being contested. For example, I have seen more than one example where the girl knows it has happened and they quickly run back to inform the police or the local leader that such and such a girl has been taken. 
And so uh, our interventions have been able to stop that and to generate more uh, role models or success stories that can then say, you see, I got married and I didn't have to go through courtship rape and I'm being a good wife. So courtship rape is the term for that terrible yeah. practice. Yes, it's called courtship rape. And it was common before in the villages or even in the cities? or No, only in the villages. Okay. Yes. Female genital mutilation must be one of the most terrible cultural practices that, that you can find in the world. But I understand maybe Uganda isn't one of the worst countries. I know it exists in Karamoja, like you, you mentioned that province. Uh, but mm. would you say where you are working, is it child marriage that is the main big problem here or is FGM still still, still common? Um, <clears throat> I would say it is still common. Um, it's done undercover mm -hmm. because government has said no to this. Communities have signed up that this should not be done. So where it happens, um, it's happening, you know, below the radar. And it's still continuing. There's a time when we saw an upsurge, a surge in that, um, but that has been addressed and we are now not hearing a lot of it. But I would say it's still continuing. Uh, it's harmful and it's something that we continually work to say that uh, it's able to stop. Um, <clears throat> it yeah. seems inconceivable for, a per, for for an outside person to 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 understand how this is actually happening. Can you describe the driving forces behind this practice? Why do even women and mothers want their daughters to be uh, mutilated? Yes. Um, so what happens is that. Uh, female genital mutilation or cutting is seen as a rite of passage into womanhood. And so um, a woman to get married and to be respected as an adult, they needed to have been cut. In, not in the whole region, but in the communities that practice that, um, mainly in uh, bits of Karamoja and also Eastern Uganda. And the motivation is that respect that comes. So the woman that has been cut is able to speak out. Uh, for example, in a village meeting, um, she's able, you know, she will get the respect of somebody who is an adult and she'll be respected by her husband. But also uh, when her sons are getting married, she's able to come and sit with the husband in those celebrations and be recognized as the official wife and also receive some of the presents that are brought for such uh, a ceremony. Now the presents are looked at as a source of income for the families because the families invest a lot of money to, to conduct such uh, ceremonies. So when people bring in presents, then they are being rewarded in a way um, for the preparations that went into arranging the weddings. So if a woman has not been cut, then she's not allowed to sit um, at the table with her husband. And at that point, um, the elders, the community can allow another woman who has been cut to come and sit in place of the woman that has not been cut. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that women cannot, you know, 
cannot stand because they cannot predict what will happen after that meeting, whether even their marriage will be affected by this engagement, but also to not be able to receive any presents that are brought to this meeting. And also then to be um, a public, you know, it would no longer be a secret that this woman actually is not cut because the reason will be obvious. Why didn't she sit at the meeting? And so these are some of the motivations and also the praise and encouragement that comes from the, the, the men that, you know, they have brought up their girls well to the extent that they prepared them for marriage. So these are some of the motivations for the men who enforce this, who push it upon the women and say, make sure your child is circumcised. It's because they want um, to have their girls ready for marriage because uh, the ones that are circumcised or cut are going to bring in more bride price than the ones that are not. So these uh, mainly the motivation is money, it's respect, it's to fit in uh, with society. And this is what uh, we have been working to change and it's slowly changing. Uh, now and again, we have reversals of, the, of that progress, especially when the engagement is not sustained. Um, if we, we do not sustain that, the ones that remain in the village can keep challenging those that have said no to female genital mutilation. And you find that uh, sometimes they give in to peer pressure. So uh, the, the intention or the, the plan is to make sure that we are persistent and consistent in our engagement with the communities so that they can, you know, they can feel encouraged to, to keep their decision. Because otherwise, this cutting can happen at any age. If a woman uh, of 48 uh, realizes that she's losing out because she was not cut, she can still go for it. It's not limited mm. to teenagers. What yes. would it take to eradicate this altogether? I mean, it's not a practice in the big cities, as far as I understand. And of course, in most of the neighboring countries around Uganda, it, it, it is not practiced or, or at least... Well, I know in the north north of Uganda it's it's common, but not not south of Uganda. So, what do you think it will take to eradicate this completely? Because I mean, people are getting more and more informed. I understand, and uh, and 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 women are getting more empowered. So, how do you see this will will end? Um, this uh, can be ended. There are already global goals to make sure that zero uh, women are cut by 2030. Um, however, one, we need uh, consistent engagement, uh, health educating communities, using role models um, at all levels, religious, culturally, to really communicate and speak about the dangers of that. Uh, one of the things that have seen working well that uh, we were able to use here was, you know, empowering women leaders to speak because the women have experienced this. So they speak from a point of personal experience. Um, and so they're able to say what they went through and whether that, for example, those that were cut, was that adequate to bring them a happy marriage or do they regret that they were forced to be cut? 
And when they have talked to fellow women, they have talked to girls, they've said no uh, to having their children cut, we have seen that that is sustained. Uh, but these women need to be, uh, their capacity needs to be developed so that they are able to speak out without fear of stigma, that they are able to reach the hard to reach places, which is where the undercover activities happen. Um, and things like that, uh, and also to build a movement um, that of people who are saying no to, to these harmful cultural practices so that that social support is able to propel the change forward. Um, and, uh, you know, even when, for example, the UN is to move out of a community like that, if we have left it with the leaders, and they are able to reach the places we can't reach, like the mountains, if they are able to know where it's happening, uh, then it's easier uh, for it to be stopped. But it requires a commitment uh, beyond the words we say to engaging with communities and uh, you know, understanding what is it going to take. And we've done uh, one or two assessments and others continue to go on to find out what are the motivations for cutting and what would it take for it to end. It's uh, unfinished business um, and it requires our flexibility to see how, you know, we, we deal with the emerging uh, complexities mm. of these cultural challenges. Yes, commendable work, really. And this is, of course, one of the worst practices, one of the worst uh, uh, expressions of inequality between men and women and there are also others and in, in Europe uh, even here we, we sometimes read and hear about this uh, female genital cutting and also about sexual violence like for instance uh, rape being used as a weapon in the civil war in in the Congo which is a neighboring country uh, but you have uh, told me that there are also other less violent forms of uh, expressions of, of inequality and uh, gender oppression, like you mentioned how uh, women can be woken up in the middle of the night by their husbands and forced to cook food because the men are hungry. Yes. Uh, seems, seems incredible. Uh, but I mean, how aware are women, you would say, generally in Uganda about these inequalities and also men, how aware are are men and women about these inequalities and how much is it talked about? Um, thank you for that. Um, the awareness is there. Um, you find that 60% uh, of the women will have a story about how they have been violated um, emotionally, physically or otherwise. Um, and they have many stories and it runs through the generations. That's why you find uh, within the informal setting, a grandparent will tell their granddaughter that, you know, keep quiet about it, don't report your husband, because I went through the same thing. Uh, but increasingly, the more we see women leaders come out to speak about this as an inequality, as something that is totally unacceptable, more women, even in the rural settings, uh, able to raise up their hand and to not keep silent and call out for help. Mm. And we are there in the communities and are supporting them and explaining how uh, 
power can be misused and how uh, people should be making, uh, you know, preventing violence and, and rather than fueling that. Um, the men are equally becoming aware of that. However, um, it's, it's the subtle ways in which this is expressed. You find that uh, uh, women at various levels are experiencing it differently. Educated women are experiencing, for example, more of the emotional violence. Uh, the ones that are in the villages are ex experiencing more of the physical violence. And so it goes on and on. And it would take like a generational change so that we learn how to respect each other. We involve men more um, in these things that we are doing. Uh, for example, recently uh, in Karamoja, we were trying to engage with the men about what they thought of this whole gender-based violence. And uh, the men felt disempowered that agencies, UN agencies or other civil society partners are coming and saying this is about the women, this is about the girls, and they felt left out. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so you so, have to include the men also in order to to have success. Maybe you you need to include the men. You need to listen to them, and uh, from a point that is neutral and understand uh, what their fears are. Like if they do not behave in quotes like men, because um, they are told a man is supposed to be tough. Yeah, he can beat the wife when he feels like it. He should not fetch water, even if the wife is pregnant. Um, so when they're engaged, uh, not in a one-off way, but on a consistent basis, then they are able to change. Mm -hmm. uh, and this comes with consulting them so that we are proposing things that are practical. Uh, there was a time when... Um, we had a campaign, there was a campaign, uh, not necessarily from UNFPA, but a nationwide campaign to encourage men to attend health services with their wives. And uh, because the, the skills of the women to negotiate for that support had not been built, the husbands were not going to the health centers. And so, and the health workers were not uh, willing to treat women who have not come with their husbands. They were giving priority to the ones that come with male partners. And so women tried to get uh, transport persons like these ones who ride motorbikes. I don't know if you saw them when you are in Uganda. Oh yes, yes. I don't remember yeah. what they're called now, but there are, there are the motorcycle taxis in many countries. In, in, in many countries, Africa. they are called Boda Boda. So oh, Boda they would, Boda, yeah. yeah. From border to border. Yeah, I remember now. That, that's the yes. old. Yeah. Okay, anyway. So, and as these were paid to accompany the woman to the health center and then line up with her and then the health worker would be satisfied that her husband is listening to instructions, but it was not changing. Um, it was not creating the desired change at household level. And these are things that we need to rethink. Mm. Um, not to wake up one day and say we want men to be involved and if they if we tick off this box then they are being involved it's a it's a deeper conversation like the one we are having to see how 
what is going to be meaningful? Uh, what are the men proposing? What would make sense to the woman? How would do we describe male involvement? And that way you find that uh, we are getting mutual benefits from uh, trying to address gender-based violence. Hmm. Yes. Well, I guess the men are also, if not victims, then of course submerged into this big pool of cultural uh, values that everyone is swimming in. And uh, so you just have to try to get on top, get, get, get uh, over the surface to see, to see the light. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that metaphor is even working, but you know what I'm... It works. I know okay. what you're saying. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so when it comes to, uh, to sexual and reproductive health, um, of course, there, there is a central issue that is the well, which is talked a lot about in the Western world. I don't know if it's talked about that much in Uganda, for instance, but it's the fertility rate. That, that is to say how many children a, a, a woman in, fertile, uh, in her fertile years have. And um, Uganda is one of the countries in the world that is growing the fastest. I think the average age is around 16 years or something like that. Whereas yes. in a country like uh, Germany, it is over 40. I think it's 43 or something. And I know that the president of Uganda, Museveni, he has talked about uh, the growing population as one of the country's main resources. But as you probably know, many people here in the West, they get scared when they see the, the numbers. So how are people in Uganda talking about this? Is a big family still considered an expression of wealth or is it seen as, as a problem? Um, thank you. Um, we are having, uh, you know, different sections or layers of this discussion. Uh, you find that uh, those that are more educated, uh, in fact, our statistics show that the effect is of uh, high fertility is reflected more among the ones that are not as educated, the ones in rural settings, and also those that are poor. Uh, because the poor, for example, in uh, Karamoja, where I was working in other areas, they think that uh, they need to get big families for people to do housework, uh, for girls to bring them uh, bride price and things like that. So they look at those benefits um, if they are living below the poverty line. Um, and then you have the ones that have not been well educated, uh, feeling that, you know, they don't see the reason why they should space their children or have fewer children. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have uh, the religious aspects, whereby even if somebody is educated because of uh, the religious uh, background, they might say they are not yet able to use contraception. And this is why, uh, for example, UNFPA works a lot with religious leaders so that they can, you know, dispel the myth around contraception and what various uh, religious guidance speaks about them. But uh, a big family is still, by and large, uh, something that, you know, is valued in Uganda. As you know, our fertility rate uh, on average, a woman is expected to have five children in her lifetime, as we stand right now. And in those uh, regions, like in Karamoja, it goes up to eight children per woman. 
and this is seen as a source of strength. Um, we were making progress on this, but now, uh, you know, external challenges like what you see COVID doing right now, uh, limiting access to contraception and to services that would prevent this unintended pregnancy, uh, you know, takes us backwards in terms of the gains that we had uh, previously made. Nonetheless, innovations are being, you know, implemented to sort of mitigate these, you know, uh, risks that are rising out of this, but we still have a long way to go uh, in order to address this. Uh, and also, most importantly, we... And if it's, it's, is it a difference between uh, Kampala and, and the countryside in this respect? You, I think you mentioned that. Yes, I mentioned that. And I was also going to mention the difference in terms of uh, access to uh, sexuality education. Uh, for example, when um, girls and boys are, are not aware of uh, what it means to, you know, to delay sex, to prevent unintended pregnancy, and how their bodies work, they may not be able to really utilize the services that would help them uh, to prevent uh, unintended pregnancies. They might end up just moving with what they have seen older, older people doing and end up having big families. Yes. Okay. You don't have any children yourself, Bernadette? I do have children. <laughs> oh, you do have children. I'm sorry. Yes. No, it's fine. Um, I have four children. Uh, but I also have other children, uh, like I was speaking earlier, in terms of the non-biological responsibilities. Uh, our culture is such that you find you're taking on uh, responsibilities of orphans, of people that are genuinely need, uh, that you find you need you know, to include as part of your family. So, mm. uh, yes. I was referring to what you mentioned before, your journey through infertility. Uh, and that yes oh okay uh, maybe you can if, if you want to share to share that experience and maybe what it taught you if it's if, if it's okay <laughs> yes um thank you uh i'm glad i actually had a success at the end of the day i had a challenge with uh, fertility for a long time i got my first child when i was 20 when I was 33 years. And uh, at first I thought that uh, being uh, a medical doctor, I would just follow what their books say, that uh, you go from taking one pill when it doesn't work, you go, we have what we call lines of treatment. So when the first line of treatment doesn't work, you go to the second line of treatment and that's an injection. And when they do not work, you go to assisted reproduction um, and other technologies that help people to get pregnant. And when I tried all that and it was not working, um, I was getting very frustrated because the culture here is that uh, a woman is defined, and I'm not saying this is correct, but this is what we are surrounded with, that a woman is defined so much by her having children. Uh, and so um, people keep asking, why isn't she getting children? And moreover, she's doing work related to reproductive health. She's talking about family planning. 
So maybe she's intending not to actually have children. Mm. Uh, so it was a bit of a, a puzzle for me until I read more about it, until I read more about it, and uh, then I was able to look at lifestyle, um, lifestyle changes that needed to happen, uh, exercise and other things, and I found that actually in medicine, we normally don't pay a lot of attention to lifestyles and how those can actually help to improve health. So you, you turn more to, to traditional medicine or traditional uh, methods uh, or practices, uh, or where did you turn to? Because you found that, that Western or traditional uh, mainstream uh, medicine wasn't able to help you in that respect. Yes, I turned more to uh, alternative medicine uh, in terms of uh, improving my nutrition um uh taking more of the nutrients that help to boost fertility uh like zinc and uh, omega-3 these are things that i had not read about in medical school mm. and then doing uh regular exercise um and you know it improves the general well-being of the body and it affected my well-being in a way that uh, medicine would not uh, was not able to do I realized actually that, uh, for example, I had uh, a hormonal imbalance. And when someone has a hormonal imbalance and mainstream medicine tries to correct that by providing more hormones, it throws the body further into imbalance rather than mm. correct it. Yeah. So this was uh, a big learning for me. And then, uh, I learned that the way to correct that imbalance was to focus on the lifestyle, which mm. actually corrected it and uh, corrected the many years that I had spent trying to take tablets and injections. Okay, yes. I'm, hap I'm happy it worked out in the end. <laughs> it did. <laughs> well, it actually uh, affects me a little bit as well because I, I have the same experience. Me and my wife, we weren't able to, to have children the, the normal way, so to speak. So. We we had our daughter by way of uh, IVF, you know, in vitro fertilization. Yes. So I know a little bit about what you're talking about. <laughs> but, but do you think? <laughs> okay, I'm glad you did. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm. Uh, so do you think? And uh, I think it's important to talk about it because uh, it is. Yes. Many people. It's like a silent epidemic that mm -hmm. uh, people do not easily talk about. They suffer in and, silence, like you, you said some, someday, sometime. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think uh, it's, it's more difficult for a woman? I think you already maybe said this, but uh, I want to ask, ask it anyway. Do you think it's more difficult for a woman in a country like Uganda with its large families to have just one child or maybe no, no ch children than, than in a country like say Japan, where most women have only one child or even, even none? It depends on where the woman is. Um, if the woman is, is educated, if a woman is not educated, but she's bold enough to defend her decisions, then it should be okay. If the husband says, I want one child, uh, regardless of where they are, <clears throat> sorry, then it should be okay. But if a woman is, for example, young, 
She's surrounded, she's staying in a homestead, she's fully dependent on her in-laws. Um, then her ability to say, to decide the number of children, it's about choice really. The ability to exercise that power of choice becomes very limited. And so she's likely to bow to pressure to continue having children. Uh, and the other thing that we had not talked about was the preference for boys to girls. Oh, yes. Yes. So if she has not had a boy, then she might feel the pressure to, you know, continue having children. Mm -hmm. I have four girls. I do not feel the pressure because I'm That's empowered good. enough. <laughs> That's very good. I'm empowered okay. enough to to speak to you know to defend my choices. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your the the situation in your country to, on a general level, and maybe maybe combine it with your personal experiences. Can you um, talk a bit about how? or even if your personal journey is tied to, to the journey of Uganda over the same period of time? Um, my journey, I would say, is uh, whereas I was in a rural setting, uh, but luckily was able to get out of that and go to school in the city, and uh, succeed within that city, uh, then uh, it's different from my peers that I grew up with. And when one is to see us, there's a huge lot of difference. I could have four children and they already have <clears throat> 12 children. Hmm. Yes, and maybe they dropped off after six years of school and something like that. That is typically what happens in some of these, uh, you know, settings that are not close to the city. Um, and so there's that difference. But the similarity or the things that have happened, for example, when I was growing up, we saw in Uganda an encouragement of women to take leadership positions. Um, in the early 90s, we had a female vice president. Uh, she is a medical doctor. Um, she's a surgeon and she used to speak uh, very, you know, eloquently and health educa educate the country on radio and on television. And for me, my mother would say, I want you to be like that. And this helped me along my journey to actually move into sciences and to feel that I can become and I can speak out. And so we have seen really the benefits of empowering women and putting them in those positions and what it does to create role models. Mm -hmm. um, and so that has been really helpful. In addition, uh, the, the government used to give bonus points uh, to girls to join university. So like mm -hmm. if one was going to miss university by two points, but they're a girl, then they would uh, be admitted anyway. Uh, because of being female. So this has helped a bit. But by and large, I would say that uh, for me, the game changer has been mainly education. Uh, 
because most of the other factors are not consistent like being able to know somebody in a position of influence uh, that is not applicable to many people but if we educate girl children like i have been educated i know that i can work in uganda i can work in a rural setting i can work in town i can work beyond the borders of uganda and still be able to relate and that has changed my journey for uh, from the majority of ugandans and this um, is the wish that we, 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 I have for many girls in Uganda. Okay. I think your Wi-Fi is, is cracking and globally, up. And it can, this has been shown. Is it okay now? It's better now. Yes. Thank you. Okay. You, you go so, ahead. Okay. And so this can also impact on uh, our population challenge in Uganda. If children, if girls stay longer in school, then it means they will take longer, they, they, they would get married when they are much older and they will not have many children. And that can really address the population question. Yes. But education as a game changer maybe goes for a lot of uh, people in Uganda over those last 20, 30 years, as you were talking about. That's correct. It goes for a lot. We see many more people um, getting into education and being able to do uh, what we previously thought were not even like mainstream, like going into drama or art uh, mm. or very, you know, starting their own businesses. And this has really uh, done a lot to improve um, the well-being of even women in Uganda. Mm. How are people describing the development going on right now? Is there, I mean, not just now with COVID-19 and all that, but, but generally the, if you say the, the, the last period of years, maybe the last two, three, four years, uh, are people, um, uh, is there a sense of hope uh, for the future? Yes, there is a sense of hope. Um, as Martin Luther once said, that without hope, nothing really gets done. Mm. We need hope to do the things we do. A farmer needs hope to plant because then he knows that the seed he puts in the ground is going to, you know, to, to develop many more seeds. And yes. so the hope is there. <clears throat> Us having seen uh, success stories, having seen uh, the good role models, having seen uh, the peace that is going on in Uganda, <clears throat> there is hope. Um, however, sometimes uh, external factors come in and they affect this hope and it becomes so faint. So what development like me and others are doing is to make sure that we continue nurturing that we catalyze it so that uh, you know it grows and is sustained mm. and people are able to dream big and to to you know to wish to become better um, like for example UNFPA has a program that is called live your dream which encourages uh, people to think big and have hope and have hope in the future and then uh, take steps whether baby steps or whatever to reach um, <clears throat> their full potential. Mm. So the Maybe hope is steps, there. Two steps ahead and one step backwards. Two steps ahead, one step backwards. 
<laughs> that commonly happens. That commonly happens. We see fallbacks um, in terms of behavior change, in terms of economic empowerment. Um, <clears throat> and we are continually working on that. Uh, what causes the back and forth so that we are able to learn from it and then um, address it so that it becomes less and less common. Yes. Okay, wrapping up, uh, Bernadette, what are your own dreams and hopes for the future for you personally? What do you want to achieve? Um, currently, I'm already living my dream, working to improve the lives and well-being of women and girls. This is what touches my heart. This is what excites me. Uh, looking uh, forward into the future, I want... Um, to focus more on research that uh, addresses the persistent problems, uh, development problems we have in Uganda. For example, teenage pregnancy has been, uh, you know, a challenge for a very long time. And I need to see what is it that we are doing right or we need to improve through research and make a contribution in that sense. Um, and also to look for working, uh, continuing to work as an idea motivator with small groups, thinking through the innovations that can make a sustainable change, uh, whether in the development settings or humanitarian settings. Um, and then to continue mentoring, you know, adolescents and young people uh, because they continue to come in. When you help one, another one still comes along the way. At a personal level, I'll be looking at settling into a phase where I can spend more time with my family. As you noted, uh, I got them a little bit late. So, um, <laughs> so how, how old are your children now? So the youngest is uh, four years and the biggest is 10 years. Okay. And so I would be wanting to do work that does not take me away from them very often. And I think these are the challenges of working mothers everywhere. Absolutely. So Bernadette Sebaduka, thank you so much for being a guest on Mind the Shift. Uh, you're doing a tremendous job and you are a wonderful role model. I wish you all the best for all the goals that you set for yourself. Thank you, Anders. I've really enjoyed the show and thank you for having me.